0: It's absolutely a pleasure for me uh, to host uh, this Thinker's Dialogue once again. Uh, this is the episode, five for the episode. We have had some great guests, but today we have a very special guest. Uh, in fact, Rishikeshakrishnan, Krishnan, who has been a friend. Uh, I must actually uh, also say that he's been a friend, philosopher, guide for me personally in many, many ways. Uh, in fact, uh, I think uh, he has been personally one of my biggest pillars of support in the times of need. So I can't thank him enough. Uh, but... Uh, Other than that, actually, on my personal uh, uh, friendship with him and huge regard for the person, uh, Rishi is uh, an acclaimed academic. Uh, The most interesting fact about him is that he's got educated from Stanford. uh, But now we just have a little bit of a difference on that, and that is that he he got educated from Stanford. I just started teaching at Stanford. Uh, Couldn't have happened without Rishi's uh, help and support over a period of time. And then, of course, uh, uh, Rishi has been the director for I Am Indoor, but now director for uh, I am uh, Bangalore uh, and a very well uh, deserved position without a doubt. From my point of view, one of the finest academics in India uh, who has actually had the ability to stand up to many, many things. Uh, And then of course, in terms of research, one of the greatest minds in the area of uh, innovation. Uh, And uh, if you talk about uh, innovation, he has done multiple books on that. He has written extensively, got published with California Management Review, uh, if I get that right. Uh, and many, many others like, uh, and of course, he does columns quite frequently. Uh, in fact, has been a columnist with uh, various newspapers, uh, founding fuel, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. And that that's what it is. So his bio is just way too long. Uh, if I just start reading it out, it'll just take an hour. But uh, having said that, Rishi, uh, thanks for being such a great pillar of support and uh, being such a great friend. Uh, thank you. And thanks a lot for joining us today.
1: Yeah, yeah. great to be on this program with you, uh, Amit. And uh... Thanks for all the nice things you said about me. Now I have to live up to all that. But yeah, great to be with you. Thank you.
2: Thank you. Thank you. So Rishi, uh, we'll quickly dive into the conversation on innovation today. Um, But as we get into the conversation, my first question to you is that uh, COVID has been something very, very uh, uh, interesting experience or a troubling experience for all of us across the board. Uh, How has it affected you and how are you really looking at uh, post-COVID scenarios or whatever. Uh, and how do you think life is going to be impacted?
1: Well, I think there have been some good uh, effects of COVID. One is, of course, that uh, travel has come down to almost zero. So that's really released a whole lot of extra time is what I see. So it just t- t- tells you and shows you you know, how inefficient you know, many of our lives were before. And you know, earlier we used to think nothing of taking a flight and going somewhere just to attend a one hour meeting, but now all those meetings are getting done online. So uh, overall, of course, uh, COVID has also been a pretty troubling period. I mean, to see the kind of vulnerability we have to such a tiny virus and the challenges in combating it. I mean, somewhere along the line, I think we had uh, developed this sense that, you know, we are all powerful, but this tiny virus has kind of really brought us down to our feet in a way.
2: And so, when when you talk about this tiny virus getting us on our feet, uh, this is something which has really pushed us into thinking about how do we really redraw or redefine the world. Uh, in fact, one of the things that you allude to is that, of course, travel has gone down, and uh, how you are effectively looking at time again. But I think it has changed many many things across us. How do you think it has impacted business?
1: Uh, how it's impacted business? Well, you know, I think it depends a lot on what business you are talking about. So, if you look at uh, businesses which were already primarily digital, I think you know clearly they've done very well. They've gone from strength to strength. In fact, uh, during this period, you can see it in the numbers. Uh, businesses which were not truly digital before have had to really struggle. They have had to embrace this whole uh, connect with uh, becoming virtual, digital, uh, getting people to work in a very different kind of way. So I think it's had very differential impact depending on what kind of uh, business we are talking about. Uh, On the whole, I think many businesses, particularly larger businesses, seem to have coped uh, quite well in in terms of making a pretty fast uh, transition. Uh, We've seen that in financial services. We've seen that in IT and so on. Uh, but yeah, I think uh, some traditional businesses have also struggled during this period.
2: So, Rishi, when you say that businesses have struggled and there are a set of businesses which have done well, uh, what enabled some of those businesses to move ahead and do better? Uh, what were the principles that were defining it? And how how do you really look at this whole aspect from innovation point of view? Yeah,
1: so I think uh, it, it, it's the companies which have done well at this, of course, the obvious things like they're probably quite agile flexible and all that. But I think it also just reflects the fact that maybe some of them had sort of thought through some of these things earlier, maybe not exactly in terms of. but you know in terms of what is the kind of transition required uh, i'm a pretty big believer in the importance and utility of scenario planning and you probably remember amit you know in the early uh, oil crisis in the 70s one oil company shell uh, weathered the crisis much better than others not because shell was better at predicting or forecasting when the oil shocks were going to happen but simply because shell had this practice of trying to look at different possible scenarios that might come up in the future and thinking through how would they respond so I, I think there's some evidence that the companies which have been fast in responding apart from the typical agility and flexibility maybe they also thought through some alternate scenarios in terms of contingency planning and when not exactly the same scenario but something that required major change happened They were able to embrace that quite easily or at least relatively easily
2: let's say yeah so one was of course uh, crystal ball gazing in some way or scenario planning but uh, do you think uh, innovation was one of the drivers or there was some different way in which they were looking at uh, enterprises themselves you said agility but what else like how, how do you think the whole principle of innovation was getting embedded within organizations
1: So, you know, typically when we talk about innovation, at least when I talk about innovation, I tend to look at uh, four important pillars of innovation. The first is problem identification. I mean, most business innovation is one way or the other driven by some problem or challenge that the company faces. And then once you have realized that your regular solutions or the kind of standard responses are not going to work, then you start looking for, okay, how do I actually handle this problem? And that's when the whole ideation process kicks in. So we tend to equate ideation with innovation, but ideation is just one part of it. Once you have ideas, you have to figure out whether they actually work, which means you have to experiment, you have to test, you have to mix ideas, match ideas, all that kind of stuff. So that's the sort of execution or experimentation phase, if you like. And then finally, once you've got it all figured out, maybe you scale up and then you start seeing the benefit to different uh, stakeholders. So I think what some of the companies were quite good at doing, the most successful ones, they sort of uh, pretty early on identified that COVID is not going to be just over in a week or two weeks. It's not as though they could just close their shutters and wait for it to pass by. But here was a problem at hand and that this problem would have to be addressed through some fresh thinking i think they sort of looked around looked for where they could get ideas from tried to learn from the companies which had shown agility earlier and that's i think where a lot of them really displayed that sort of alacrity to
2: quickly embrace that kind of innovative thinking this this is interesting rishi in terms of like how
0: how they were looking at uh, things around them Uh, but you yourself have said in the past uh, that there are there is scope for product process and business model innovation which is huge uh, do you think this crisis pushed us towards uh, pushing the uh, what i call frontier uh, in terms of product innovation or process innovation or business model innovation
1: yeah again it, it depends i guess quite a bit uh, amit on what kind of businesses you are talking about we have seen some companies do extremely well on product innovation they tend to be the ones in the broader healthcare space, whether it company, whether it be companies who are trying to identify vaccines or even before vaccines in terms of testing kits. I mean, we know historically that to develop a new vaccine against a virus typically takes 10, 15, 20 years. If you look at in India, for example, we have rotavirus, which is a major cause of infant mortality. It took almost 30 years for a low-cost rotavirus vaccine to be developed in India. But you can just see in the case of COVID in in less than a year, you've had companies who've been able to go through the entire process, including testing and all the rest and take a product to market. So we have certainly seen product innovation. Processes, particularly within the company, have had to change a lot. I think work from home is a good example. Uh, Many companies who had uh, very sort of rigid or rigorous policies about employees only working from the office because of confidentiality, data security, and other reasons. They had to just change their internal processes overnight to cope with this. They had to live with whatever challenges there were with employees working from home, and several of them seem to have made that transition very quickly. I mean, TCS is a good example if you're looking for a large company which embraced work for home quite fast. Business model, I think, has been a a little more challenging for many companies. They have uh, tried to figure out what is the way to embrace uh, different business models. Of course, the simplest ways were essentially to embrace some kind of digital interface with the customer. So digital payment systems and uh, you know, even simple things like sending emails. I mean, for example, I'm really, uh, was very pleasantly surprised to find that, you know, I had to surrender a BSNL connection. And typically in the old days, if you had to do anything with BSNL, you had to go and stand in a long queue in the BSNL customer care center. But BSNL is actually accepting, you know, you can write a letter, you can just scan it and send it through email and they're willing to act on that. So, I mean, even com- companies like bsnl which one don't re- normally don't look at them as the sort of pioneers or the movers of innovation they have actually been trying to change their processes
2: and in a way also change their business models because they're trying to look at different ways for making money as well
0: rishi so as you were saying that you know like uh, the Product innovation that we have actually seen, healthcare sector being able to reduce the development cycle to about say nine months to twelve months. Do you think that this whole process can actually be learned by other enterprises and other processes or across different sets of products as we go along? Because this is this is a very big defining moment in time in terms like how innovation is effectively going to happen.
1: Yeah, so I think there are some uh, elements of this which uh, are. In a way, serendipitous and connected to COVID and some things which you might be able to replicate later. Uh, let's start with the serendipitous stuff. I think one challenge, in, particularly in companies, is resource allocation. And it is having a strategic focus. I mean, a great example of this is a company like Apple. You remember Steve Jobs when he came back and joined Apple for the second time. He, the first thing he did was he threw out most of the products. He said, you can't make a good product company by having such a huge product portfolio. Let's just have one or two killer products which really make it. And then he focused all his attention, all his resources on making that happen. In a way, COVID provided that opportunity just by the nature of the pandemic. So you had like pharma companies realizing that COVID is the thing, so we need to focus on that. Maybe let's put aside all the other projects and put them on the back burner and let's focus on that. Sometimes getting that razor-like focus in normal times is not easy, because in most companies you tend to want to hedge your bets, you want to have a portfolio, and you know all those kind of thought processes come into way, uh, come into play. Unless you're like somebody like Steve Jobs, who is a Innovation guru and you're absolutely sure this is what is going to work and you know you put your money and resources and everything
2: uh, behind it.
1: I think that's one uh, dimension of this. Uh, Some things of course are quite transferable. For example, you can see the kind of cycle times. Uh, you can see the uh, sort of uh, even the more unique testing methods I mean for example when people were trying to do to, uh, develop testing kits they needed ways of checking out whether the testing kits were effective or not and you know the virus sort of uh, what are they not samples or whatever they call it which you need to test your kit on were not easily available so you needed to find smart ways of testing your kit so That ingenuity, I think, is sort of transferable to the post-COVID era as well. So essentially, you're going to have uh, different elements of that. The third part of it, which is quite interesting, is the regulatory issues. Uh, If you look at uh, typically in a regulated industry, one of the challenges that causes long delays in uh, approvals of products is uh, the regulatory process, particularly things like drugs and healthcare and so on but you can see the alacrity with which the regulatory agencies have moved uh, during this uh, covid pandemic to uh, ensure that you know the uh, uh, both the testing kits as well as the vaccines and everything else got very very quick approval so i think that's something which governments and regulators are going to have to grapple with in the post covid era to see how can they provide that kind of support because otherwise you know many of these things just take years and years to uh, come to
2: market so Rishi, like just digressing onto one side like you, you made a very important point and that was how regulatory challenges were overcome so that, that means there has been a huge governance innovation somehow that has actually happened even though of course it was driven by prices do you think countries would actually be able to invite this because if you're able to innovate, because it becomes a process innovation for government in many ways. Like If they do that, I think delivery of services for citizens would actually be hugely impacted in a positive way.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great point, Amit. And I think that's going to be a big challenge, particularly for India. Why so? Because if you just look at the actions which the government took, say something like from about May, June last year, uh, particularly in all these areas we have been talking about, you know, setting up a consortia of companies, bringing together all the different stakeholders, identifying what are the gaps in the products uh, available which are necessary to combat COVID, then finding companies which have the necessary resources, and I was once reading about you know just the what the thing they used to take the sample in order to test whether you have covid or not they found that you know even those things were not available those buds i think they are called they found they were not available so they found that reliance had the right material to make the stem for that bud the uh, but uh, the process of actually assembling it together was something that johnson and johnson had in its factory in Bombay. So they had to get J&J and Reliance and all work together so that they could rapidly scale up and make sure millions of those swabs were available to take out the uh, COVID samples. So things like that. And the government really moved very proactively to get different arms of the government to work together. So uh, I don't know how it... uh, can be done, but this is going to be a huge challenge. How are we going to sustain that kind of collaborative working in the post-COVID era?
0: Yeah, so uh, on a side note, you know, like on this exact uh, thing, we have just done a case study for the Ministry for uh, Textiles. Uh, so it is already available, exactly documenting as to what was ha- what had happened. Uh, but uh, just, just coming back to the uh, conversation, you know, uh, when you talk about this whole idea of innovation, uh, it is all driven through intellectual property rights. And especially the industry that you're really talking about. But uh, I think in this crisis, people have shared more information than any time in the history of the uh, system. So how do you think this might actually impact the whole IPR regimes across the world or how, how the global information systems have actually just uh, come together in terms of sharing this information and building something very uh, potent for survival of human race?
1: Yeah, actually, the IPR situation, unfortunately, Amit, is not that clear because, you know, a lot of the innovation these days is driven by data. It's driven by AI and machine learning and a whole lot of the new methods that are coming in. But the intellectual property rights regime which accompanies the data revolution is not really yet in place. Uh, I mentioned the regulatory issues also. Regulatory issues are also quite serious. I mean, for example, in uh, Europe, we already have things like the GDPR and the GDPR requires AI algorithms to be transparent and it you know, should be accountable and so on. Uh, I think it's not yet really, I mean, companies have not quite hit up against those things yet, but it's going to happen. And they're very basic things. Like, for example, suppose you're trying to train your uh, algorithm for which you use data. Suppose you use somebody else's data. Would you, would you be infringing some law? I mean, for example, you might conceivably be uh, infringing copyright law, but is that a good thing to happen? I mean, should that kind of a copyright protection be there for using somebody else's data to train your AI algorithm? So there are, you know, the huge, unreli- I mean, unresolved issues in this whole uh, data and AI space, which are, need very urgent resolution if we are not going to have significant IPR challenges uh, in innovation uh, going forward, I mean, IPR issues in fields like pharma and all are uh, fairly well established in that way. You're right. During COVID, the uh, barriers to collaboration have come down. Uh, you know, the COVID shield vaccine is a great example. Oxford University, AstraZeneca, and companies like the Serum Institute all collaborating with each other uh, and with, I think, reasonably. Uh, you know, agreeable commercial terms. So, I mean, nobody is trying to really completely exploit the other. Everybody is benefiting from it. But yeah, it's, it's again, sorry, and it's not very clear that this will just uh, automatically
2: continue once uh, COVID is over. Yeah, so just moving a step ahead onto this, like, of course, there is this IP and how things change. Uh, but there are enterprises who generally do not appreciate the aspect of importance of IP and appreciate that this can be the basis for competitive advantage. Uh, How how do you really look at that uh, situation? Because that gets very closely aligned to what you have been saying in the past as well, like the idea of moving from Java innovation to systemic uh, innovation. So how how do you really look at the situation?
1: I think it depends a lot on the sector. uh, Amit. One reason, for example, in India, we have not seen so much focus on IPR is because we are not present in a big way in the sectors where IPR is critical. I mean, for example, if you were to make a list of the top patent grantees in the world, you would see that the top 10 companies are all in some way in electronics, semiconductors, computers, things like that. But those are not the industries in which India has a big presence. We tend to be in, in, except for pharma maybe, but even pharma, typically, you know, we have traditionally been more on the process side than on the product side. Again, the product companies are very heavily into IP, but the process companies are not so much focused on IP. And, you know, in India, the three top uh, industries as far as R&D spend are pharma, transportation, and IT, uh, broad sectors. Uh, transportation, yes, the emerging areas of transportation, like you know the, the whole electronics and computers that are going into cars and trucks, that is of course an IP-led area. In fact, Ford is today in one of the top one of the top ten IP holders in the world because of its focus on uh, car electronics. But Again, we don't have strong presence in that, you know, that we are largely have multinationals operating in India. Uh, Indian cars in general have a very much lower level of electronic intensity than, say, a typical car outside. So one of the reasons we have not embraced IP so closely is also because of the industries in which we are strong. Again, if you take IT, we have been strong in services, which is not the kind of business in which IP plays a very critical role. It's more in products and technology that, you know, plays a bigger role. So I think India's um, relative, uh, I don't want to call it backwardness, but let's say relative, you know, being relatively behind on IP is partly because of the industries in which we have uh, focused traditionally hopefully with all these new missions, you know, like the quantum computing mission and many of the new initiatives that are you know, on the anvil now, we'll start taking a more proactive role in emerging technologies. When we do that, then, you know, IP will in a way follow. It'll be inevitable. You can't be a player in emerging technologies if you're not also uh, embracing uh, IP. So,
2: you know, like uh, recently in the economic survey, which was just released on the 29th of January, it was said, that Indian uh, enterprises are not really focusing on R&D and they're not spending enough. Uh, so it goes back to exactly the point uh, to what you were saying that is it the industry problem or is it a, uh, in a, what I call a problem of enterprises as well?
1: Yeah, so I think it's a bit of both. Uh, I, I have my own hypothesis on this so I'll tell you what that hypothesis is. So, you know, I, I have a feeling that you know, more, many of our traditional business houses which are essentially the way industry in India is structured. They understand finance and trading and all that stuff very well. But they don't really traditionally at least understand R&D and technology that well. So they were quite content to get uh, technology from somebody else and focus on the other aspects of business which they understood. So the companies which have embraced R&D and technology have tended to be those where the family members themselves Or some key member in the family has himself or herself got into technology. So you can see examples. You look at somebody like, you look at the Mahindra group, you know, when Anand Mahindra started getting involved and, you know, he started spending time and, you know, getting behind some of those investment decisions. Or you take Ratan Tata, you know, when Tata Motors was investing in the Nano or even when they acquired uh, Daewoo trucks in uh, Korea so you need one of those key figures from the owning family who is willing to get his or her hands dirty you know into the technology and the innovation space if that doesn't happen generally you don't see it the reason for example pharma was relatively r and d focused is because we had some really good technocrats who are who understand the brain well you know you look at anji reddy in drl you look at parvinder singh in ranbaxy you look at, uh, you know, all of them. You look at Sipla. You look at you know, Mr. Hamid, Dr. Hamid and Sipla. These are all people who understand technology well and therefore they don't hesitate to invest in R&D and technology and wait to see the results. When you don't understand the stuff and you're dependent on some R&D team uh, and you're not fully confident whether those guys are going to make it or not, I think it's quite difficult to, you know, make big investments uh, in R&D. So I think one big, change we need is we need more and more of the people who are the owners or the promoters as we call them in india they need to get their you know fingers deep into these technology and innovation issues
2: so there are three distinct players in this whole innovation issue so like one is very clearly uh, what the government can do so the government does create the ecosystem businesses will have to take some steps. but what about say something like the student community, is highly really talk about it, They come from that field. Like India does have close to about a million engineers that come out uh, each year to a huge number of MBAs, which is close to about at least uh, 1.5 lakh MBAs each year. Uh, but then what we do find is that there is very less, uh, what I call development of unique sets of ideas or whatever. There seems to be much more copying of ideas from the West. So why does that actually happen? Like, where is it that that ecosystem is not performing?
1: Yeah, so I think we do have to lay some of the blame on our education system, whether we like it or not. Generally, in Indian education, if you try to do something original, for example, in the exam, if you try to write an answer which is different from what's in the textbook, you're asking for trouble, you'll really be depending on getting a really enlightened examiner who will recognize the merit in your answer and give you marks. So I think that's that's one challenge of the whole thing. Yeah. An associated challenge is also, you know, even at home, you know, everybody's focused on, you know, just somehow getting the thing done rather than, you know, you're displaying your ingenuity. You know, I keep telling this story. There was a, used to be an advertisement, by one of the leading printer companies on tv which you might have seen so this is late in the evening on a sunday and the kid suddenly realizes he has an object to submit the next day and the parents then you know get all flustered and they immediately go and get him a hp sorry i shouldn't use that word but the company's printer and you know they, the whole family is now working to help this kid you know uh, make the project in time so that you know he can go and get the best marks the next day and yes lo and behold he does but that's completely defeating the purpose of the project the project was supposed to be done by the kid not by the parents and the family and so on so i think this education and the way our families operate in a way sort of stand in the way of innovation the other thing is confidence i think that is growing which is a good thing that's why i'm really happy to see that there's a new generation of entrepreneurs who seems to be much more confident than the earlier one but you you need to you need to be really confident to be obstinate that you have the right idea i mean just look at a guy like elon musk right he has a lot of these crazy ideas i mean when he first started talking about his new model for transportation in hyperloop pods and all people thought he was utterly crazy but you can see that some of those ideas, I mean, many of his ideas don't make it, but lots of his ideas finally do revolutionize the industries they're in. But, you know, but he's unfazed. I mean, you know, people are calling him names, people are writing nasty things about him on social media. You know, he couldn't care. Less. He's, got, he's got these ideas and he's standing for those ideas. So you need a tremendous amount of confidence if you want to stand up for distinctive ideas of your own. And lastly, I think those, we have also to give a little bit of the blame to the investment community. I mean, the investment community in India tends to be very sort of playing safe. Uh, if you go to them with an idea, they'll, the first question they'll probably ask you is, which is the you know global company which you are like? They immediately want an analogy so the moment you so that that's your sunk right because you have now you're all you're straight away on the imitative path because you have to be like amazon or you have to be like uh, whatever uber or whatever it is so i think so these are some of the reasons i think we'll be we sort of finding it difficult to break out from that imitative mode and get into the original mode
0: and so what more can be done so like if, if i you come from the education field itself uh, what do you think education system should do to really push this forward? Like one is, of course, you need to create that independence, seek openness and everything. What else can be done? And I think it needs to start at the school level. It does not need to come at the level of, say, an engineering school or an MBA school.
1: Yeah, you. I mean, you can see it all. It's already there. I mean, you, for example, you see some of the kids who are doing the IB curriculum. You know, a lot of in our big cities now, lots of kids uh, go to IB schools, right? So you can see their whole way of looking at things is quite different. There are a lot of open-ended questions. There are projects. The projects don't have well-defined kind of right answers. A whole lot of that stuff actually is already happening. Uh, In a way, we are sort of slowly trying to recreate that system. I mean, for example, all these Atal tinkering labs, they're a great, uh, I think, page for kids to try things out. I only hope they're working the way they are supposed to, because you know, t- traditionally in India, if you had something like a lab, it would be under lock and key and the key would be with the teacher. I just hope the tinkering labs are genuinely open and available to all the kids so they can be trying things out uh, in the lab. But I think that that's the way to go. We really need to open up. We need to uh, encourage kids. Uh, and I think that there is stuff happening, but it needs to be on a much bigger scale.
0: So that, that's a very positive uh, news, uh, as you really say. they uh, just moving ahead on this. In fact, let's come back to the enterprises uh, once again. And when you talk about enterprises, like you have talked about the idea of leadership and the importance of leadership. Uh, where, do you, where do you think they can actually have an impact on how enterprises work as they move forward towards their journey towards innovation and things?
1: Yeah, so today I think the leadership has a great role to play and that's the role of what we call the orchestrator of experiments. So let me explain what that means. So you just remember minutes ago I was talking about the innovation process and I was emphasizing the importance of a lot of experimentation with new ideas. One of the big problems used to be that experimentation was expensive, experimentation was difficult, you needed test setups, all that stuff. But today in a digital world, the ease of experimentation has certainly increased quite a bit. Uh, particularly if you are in a digital or a quasi-digital company, the cost of experimentation is very low. So there's absolutely no excuse for not doing lots and lots of experiments. So earlier when we did not have enough data, The role of the more experienced leadership in the company was to fill in the gaps in the data. So you used your intuition to try and substitute for the data you didn't have. But that's no longer the case because today there's no excuse. Today you actually have the data, it's getting generated. So then what's the role of leadership? Leadership's role is to make sure that people are Doing those experiments, using the data generated from the experiments to take the right decisions—they are encouraging a lot more experimentation than before, and it's happening, by the way. So, for example, recently I met a guy who is a manager in an online travel portal, and he said that one of his KPIs every quarter is that he has to do at least 50 experiments during the quarter. That's part of his, uh, you know, key performance indicators for his performance uh, measurement. And.
0: Yeah there are many enterprises who have tried to imbibe this whole, uh, what do you call it, chief, you use the word, orchestrator of experiments. So uh, when you talk about, like, there are enterprises who have really pushed towards entrepreneurship and doing something interesting, creating newer ideas. Uh, And at least I I do read about a very interesting example called Hire, uh, how they've tried to do that in China and creating those small enterprises within them. Are you really looking at those sets of things emerging in other parts of the world? And really
1: pushing forward, uh, not to the same degree, I guess. In India, we have seen some uh, examples of that. For example, I know that at Marico, Mr. Mariwala has been encouraging a lot of entrepreneurship. This whole Kaya skincare chain came out of some such experiment within the company. Uh, we uh, many many years ago we heard of people like Shiv Nadar LCL encouraging. Uh, people with entrepreneurial uh, talent in the company to set out on their own and start new things. I think even NIIT was one of the very early experiments in that. So we've seen a little bit of that happening, but certainly not to the yeah. extent yeah. that we would expect to see. I mean, it's, it certainly should be much more than what we have seen in the past.
0: If you really look at uh, when you were saying like you've, you've seen some set of experiments here, do you, do you think there can be a movement of sorts within the corporate sector to really push forward this, with this kind of agenda uh, to really make themselves more agile, more responsive, more uh, have more, uh, more enabling factors for creating competitive advantage and things?
1: Yeah, but it involves uh, taking some fairly uh, big risks, I think, or at least big leaps, let's say, maybe not risks. Also, it involves taking some big leaps. See, I think most businesses today are uh, have the potential to become quasi-digital. What I mean by that is, even if the product cannot be made or delivered digitally, a lot of the processes can be made digital so that you are able to generate a lot of data and use that data for innovation and so on. And essentially, we are talking about things like IoT, robotic process automation, all that stuff. So it is possible to convert even a very traditional business into a quasi-digital business. The moment you do that, it really enhances your ability to do a lot more experimentation than you were doing before. But I'm a little surprised that uh, even when you talk to some of the established business houses in India and you try to understand uh you know their plans for even things like uh digitalization they, they don't they're not seeing the uh, sort of uh, the innovation angle to it they're not seeing uh, they're still looking at it more as you know let's reduce cost let's you know try to enhance efficiency let's reduce time and all that stuff which i I'm not poo-pooing that i mean those are all important but the fact that it could actually give you a leap to do something very differently from the way you're doing it today is still something that many of even the larger groups are not quite embracing.
0: So that's an interesting point. Just moving ahead on uh, with this, you know, like we did talk about this very idea of, say, business model innovation. Uh, And where where do you think, if I really, the next basis for competitive advantage as I see it, as a lot of literature is talking about, is going to be innovation on business model or uh, delivering services and uh, things. And you have also talked about uh, that that it, it's, a, it's an experience economy that we are really getting into. Uh, how do you think product enterprises will be able to innovate to create newer business models, newer engagements, newer, uh, what I call, experiences uh, for people? Because that is what is going to drive them to enterprises, right? Uh, maybe i be so, probably wrong, but then...
1: Yeah, so I think the few things which are sort of becoming evident, the first one is the importance of collaboration. And the second one is the importance of strategic experimentation. I gave you the example of Ford earlier. If you look at Ford's uh, trajectory in this whole mobility space, I think Ford was one of the auto companies which understood quite early that there's a whole new definition of mobility coming in it's not just focused on the car it's based on the entire sort of mobility experience and they started collaborating with a whole lot of companies in very different domains whether it be technology companies or you know just companies in, in different industries to look at things a whole lot of things you know looking at things like um, uh parking innovations, looking at things like uh, service shuttles, looking at things like uh, vehicle swap programs. I mean, they started looking at building a whole lot of new digital platforms which could enable movement in all these different areas and they realized quite early that given their dna as a car company it might be quite difficult for them to pilot all these things themselves so they got into a whole sort of whole range of strategic alliances with other companies to pioneer some of these platforms of course some of them didn't work and some of them had to be scrapped and all this but this really enabled to uh, move uh, forward quite fast. So to my mind, these these two elements seem to go very closely together. Your ability and willingness to collaborate with a whole range of players who might have been quite unconnected to your business earlier and your willingness to not only collaborate but take some strategic bets, do some strategic experimentation along with those partners. The third thing I should add, which I forgot, is the importance of working with startups. Now, of course, it's a fashion, everyone says, you know, I'm working with startups, I have this, you know, accelerator program and so on, but it's not easy. I mean, how do you structure things inside your company so that you can work effectively with startups so that you benefit and there's no point in doing that in killing the startup because then that will sort of kill the golden goose, right? So the startups DNA has also got to be preserved and companies are in a way struggling. And I I find in India, particularly companies have not been very thoughtful about how they structure these uh, relationships with startups. Particularly the bigger guys tend to start looking very menacing to the startup, which will not really help, uh, you know, the kind of uh, collaboration or the kind of uh, alliance you're trying to build.
2: So Rishi, Rishi, you you have alluded to the example of uh, automotive company a number of times here. In fact, so let me ask you this funny question then, like when you talk about, and you've also talked about uh, internet of things and you're talking about like how uh, newer, how how do you think internet of things can actually have an impact on the automotive uh, enterprise? Because we are talking about a very industry which was made on the basis of of course, internal combustion engine, oil and everything, but now it is going to be battery. But there is something more that's going to happen.
1: Yeah, so I mean, I, I to, look to to be honest, I'm not an expert on the automobile industry, but I can see that you know people in the industry are trying to think very differently now because I, I recently had some interaction with one of the big European automakers and clearly they're very worried about whether their current model of doing things is going to work and their biggest worry is not about other car companies of course their biggest worry is about the googles and amazons of this world you know getting into their space and uh, eating up their things so i don't think i should comment on iot specifically because that's not really my strength but clearly you were talking earlier about business models you were talking about uh, you know competition coming from unexpected kind of quarters i think that's the big uh, fear for many of those companies and you know you must have read these comments said right? very often some of the the biggest fears for established companies is that you know one of those guys the fang guys are going to enter their space and, You know, the moment they see that they start getting worried so i think that's that's a big challenge for them
0: mm-hmm. and so let, let me come to an industry that you have been operating in and uh, given the situation in the world today and how uh, something like the interaction that we are doing now, this might not have happened exactly as you said uh, one year back and we are doing it right away. Uh, how do you think education will fundamentally change as we go along? Do you think that the very structure of universities could change, institutions like IM Bangalore or other IMs might change over a period of time or they are going to be here to stay?
1: So I think, I Amit, mean, there are some very clear uh, distinctions we need to make. I mean, when a student goes to a you know, top-ranked university or institution, one of them is, of course, the content. For example, learning how to, you know, formulate a strategy or you know, use Porter's five forces or something like that. Now that's one part of it. Now that's the part which could probably quite easily become online. Maybe you don't necessarily need all the education infrastructure that we have today to uh, do that kind of learning. So that's one part of it. Second part is, you know, the the things where there's no black and white kind of an answer, you know, the grays. And there are a lot of uh, grays, right? It could be in terms of human resource management it could be in terms of uh, you know ethical issues it could be a whole lot of even strategic issues where you know there clearly multiple options and prima facie just on the basis of the data you can't necessarily say one path is going to be the best because there are a lot of uncertainties involved so for all those grays where you need you know where your typical case study classroom brings out all those trade-offs and all those difficult decisions you have to make. I don't see that, I mean, some amount of that discussion could of course be online, but I don't see that sort of just uh, disappearing overnight. The third part of the education is the social part. And here are multiple dimensions to it. I mean, one of the big advantages of going a big name university or business school is the network you build. I mean, the people you are classmates with today Uh, at least historically 20 years later, they're likely to be the uh, CEOs of companies at that time. So that's the kind of, and and the close connections you build with that network when you're going through a common social experience, that is not, at least to the best of my knowledge, replicable online. So if I just break it up into these three parts, you can see the first one, yeah, for sure online is going to do the trick, can do the trick. The second one online can do up to a point, but the really rich, deep discussions, face-to-face discussions are much better. And the social part is almost irreplaceable uh, digitally. So depending, you know, where you are on this spectrum. So let's say a a student going for undergraduate education or going for, you know, a a high-end MBA. I don't see those things getting, you know, kind of disrupted overnight. But yeah, several other things could get disrupted. If I need to learn a particular skill because I need it for my job, or if I need to, you know, enhance or sharpen something, or need to learn a new technique, all of those things, yeah, for sure, could be done quite effectively online. And those are likely to shift in that direction. So I think it's a nuanced answer. I think it all depends on which kind of activity you're talking about.
2: Of course, like uh, I agree with you on that, but then. There is also an opportunity here as I see it. Like, uh, l- let's take a step back in terms of say or let's look at the younger sector. Uh, so when you talk about school and whatever and in terms of, in a case like or in a place like India or Africa uh, where education outcomes are a big challenge. yeah, I- These technologies could actually help in a significant way. Yeah,
1: but you know, again, you have other problems, right? Like for example, uh, you, you know this very well. In MOOCs, for example, completion rates are quite low okay so how are you going to create that stickiness with the learner so for, uh, the learner stickiness will automatically get enhanced if the learner absolutely needs that to get ahead then you know then you don't have so many motivational issues but you think about school kid who is not doing terribly well not that highly motivated who is trying to learn everything online who is going to you know or how are you going to help those kids really feel connected or know uh, sort of feel some glue to the entire education process so part of it historically came from the teacher part of it came from fellow kids if you're a little richer it came from a tuition teacher or somebody like that but how are you going to you know basically create all that stickiness yes the, the the simple part of delivery i agree with you but it'll need to be complemented with other things is what i think
2: you, you yourself, you you said something very important here, and that was a tuition teacher. And suddenly, you have a business model uh, in an enterprise which was valued at a billion dollars recently, uh, and uh, that was a tuition institution. And then it was picked up by another large enterprise. And, yeah. you know, what is happening in that space? Like because uh, that's probably I'm not able to get a, a finger on the uh, thing as to what what's really happening and why those valuations. What's driving it? Because of that, learning is going to be hugely different. It's about social interaction. It's about that experience. If that's not happening, where is that valuation coming from? Or is it just in a high up situation? <laughs> yeah. So I think, well, of course, people
1: are trying to build a sort of network economies of scale, trying to get more people onto the same platform. So if you're already got certain products and then you can add on some more, which kind of create a pipeline to that. I mean, obviously you have a bigger network. You can try to uh, exploit some of those network economies and so on. So I can see some of that consolidation game happening around the creating those kind of network economies uh, trying to get to a kind of winner-take-all situation where you sort of dominate uh, that space so that seems to be what's happening right now uh, in education uh, at least uh, particularly the kind of you know companies you were just referring to
0: but then what about the valuations like uh, how how do you really look at those like do do you think they are realistic or non-realistic if you want to answer that question i don't want you to be yeah. No, no,
1: I say, I mean, see, after all, it's very difficult today to say whether a particular valuation is worth it or not. The, I think we'll know about the uh, correctness or otherwise of that valuation only in a few years uh, going forward. Uh, obviously, uh, you know, when there's a lot of hype around a sector, when there's some multi- players all jostling to become dominant in that sector you're going to have exaggerated valuations there's no doubt about that will, will they be able to convert those uh, you know very high priced acquisitions into value later is an open question but yeah i mean irrational exuberance is no stranger to us we've seen it big time in the dot-com boom and we are seeing elements
2: of that even today now that, that's an interesting one but then just moving this conversation ahead in terms of learning and uh, idea of innovation and things. And how do you really look at this idea of creativity within individuals and how to propel that? Because that's that's what is really going to push forward this idea of innovation, looking at things differently, looking at yeah. perspective and things. Yeah. So uh, let me give
1: you an example which we wrote about in one of our books. Uh, this is uh, f- from Titan. And uh, Titan, many years ago, yeah sort of had, they had this idea, you know, how do we get or tap into the creativity of people working in our company? And they had a sort of strong sense that, yes, people do have creativity. The challenge is only how do we uh, channelize that creativity into uses which will benefit the company. So One of the interesting things they did at that point of time was to set up what they call an innovation school of management. Very simple idea. They worked with one of the consulting firms, developed a three-day workshop, on creative problem solving skills put all their employees and groups of 25 through that program and then at the end of every program the uh, participants were given a project to work on it's somewhat like the googling except that in google it's always about you choose the project but here the company chose the project and said okay now you guys work on this project you apply the creative problem solving skills you learned in the training and see what kind of difference you can make and quite amazing i mean uh, uh, once uh, we invited some of those uh, folks from the shop floor in Titan to come and speak in one of our programs on campus. And initially, I was very skeptical. You know, when I heard all this stuff, I thought this is, again, you know, some corporate, uh, you know, stuff. And um, it, it, it really work in practice. But then when those guys from the shop floor came and explained, you know, and there are not fancy type guys at all. Not Hardly any of them could speak in English. They all spoke in their own uh, mother tongue. But they explained so nicely how they had used all these creativity techniques to solve some of the problems they were facing in the workplace. Then I realized, hey, this this can actually work if you create the right conditions. So they gave them time. They gave them mentorship. They sort of enabled uh, their creative problem skills by, uh, you know, getting this consulting firm to run some of those workshops. And presto, you know, they were a lot of them were able to convert their individual creativity into some group innovation.
2: And so, just just on this, when you're talking about bringing the creativity about and how that whole process is done, what about looking at things from different fields of? thought like or schools of thought like because typically like what i see is that if you're really in a business school or an engineering school you're not looking at other uh, areas like say liberal arts or whatever do you you think that's going to be an important aspect for absolutely everybody sure sure yeah no
1: i I think the the field of innovation also tells you that sometimes you can get the best ideas from completely different fields Uh, one of the uh, the best stories i once read about this was a children's hospital in london where they you know they get a lot of uh, kids uh, for emergency kind of treatment and so on and at some particular point of time they found their mortality rates in emergency care were going up essentially something was going wrong they were not able to uh, uh, you know take care of the kids problems fast enough so they started wondering you know where should we look for ideas on how to fix this problem so they started thinking about where which is the industry in which there are significant coordination challenges, which the industry is able to address in very short spans of time. And they realize the best example of this is F1 racing. When the car goes into the pit stop, you know you get just a few seconds in which the tires have to be changed you have to refuel the car the windshield has to be clean all that stuff has to be done and everything has to be just right by the time that whatever number of seconds is finished the driver has to be t- able to take off and so they studied uh, f1 pit stops and then they realized some of the coordination mistakes they were making in the hospital and they went and implemented that so you know good ideas can come from you know very very different areas
2: that is fascinating, fascinating in fact just we are coming to a close uh, for a conversation, but then just one question which i which uh, or uh is stuck in the mind in terms of like what are the major disruptions that can actually happen in the next few years, five to ten years like one disrupt we are living through one disruption. what else that can actually define the world or redefine the world for us? Uh, And of course, there are some Elon Musk examples that he was suggesting. What else do you think can actually drive them? Uh, I
1: don't, well, you know, I'm not a very good, uh, you know, technology forecaster, actually. But I think what would really be helpful for us in India is particularly some disruptions on the education and training front which you already sort of identified, I think that's critical. We've been talking about all this killing and uh, all this demographic dividend for years, but we haven't really cracked that problem. So that's an area which is just waiting for some really uh, disruptive changes to happen. Another one is probably transportation. Which is today one of the biggest uh, causes of pollution. It's a cause of uh, you know all these big traffic jams and all the rest. So clearly, given our uh, country's size, population, uh, population density, and all that, uh, uh, disruptions in in transportation are are going to be uh, very be very useful if we could really completely reimagine the way we do the whole uh, transportation sector. And the third would be an obvious one would be healthcare. I mean, it's very obvious that we cannot afford to reproduce or replicate the healthcare system, which is in the developed world. We simply don't have the resources today. We are unlikely to have the resources going forward. But, you know, we have a lot of good Indian examples of people who have really brought down the costs of healthcare. How can we, you know, basically... Take all those ideas and do some disruption on a much larger scale, so that we can provide high-quality universal healthcare at a reasonable cost. I think that's an area just waiting for disruption. I don't know the answers to these questions, but these are all the I think areas where disruption would really help.
2: And if I just follow it up with another point, and, and seek your views, like when you talk about this whole idea of jugar, you know, like there there, there seems to be this—is uh, it a Right thing to do, or is it the nemesis? Because uh, from my point of view, Jugad is about shortcuts. It's it's just not right. It's just not appropriate. How do you really look at this whole idea? So uh,
1: yeah, you know, I think we've we've discussed this uh, several times. You know, on multiple platforms. I think this this Jugad thing has got uh, you know people have got a bit confused about it. There's one part of Jugad which is good. That is the whole ingenuity that people exercise to solve problems they are facing. If you don't have that urge to do that. You'll probably not be a good innovator anyway. So that's that's a good part of Jugat. And sometimes you do that, particular you know, within the constraints you have, using the available materials in your context. It's also a good way of uh, you know innovating. The problem is when you do this in such a way that it's not scalable, because you do some quick fix, as you said, you do some shortcut that works only the one time you would it, it's not going to work for anybody else that's not going to work anymore. I think we've we've just seen that today's customers, today's users they want quality and low cost at the same time. Nobody is going to put up with a, a, you know, a lousy product just because it costs less money. Uh, to, to my mind it was the Nokia cell phone, that very simple Nokia 1100 or whatever it was that was launched say about 15 years ago which essentially you know it did everything you wanted to do you could make a call you could send a text message it had a small screen it was very reliable you chuck it on the floor nothing would happen to it that's when people realize that you know all this Jugaad stuff is not good enough you need something that's robust you need something that's scalable and can it, it doesn't have to cost a lot of money but it does all the functions you want it to do so that I think is, is that's that's the challenge for Jugad.
2: Perfect and I have a very interesting question from the audience. And the question is Would incorporating Tintin and Asterix comics at school level make us all more innovative? And that's a question for you. <laughs> yeah, I don't know.
1: Well, you know, see, again, the problem with things like comics and all is they tend to be a little passive. You you, you see, uh, yeah, Professor Anil Gupta, one of my former and very respected teachers, one of the things he talks about is the difference between download and upload. So, you know, India we download a lot of stuff. We basically watch YouTube videos and all. But historically, we didn't upload enough. Of course, now we are uploading more. Uh, not always in the best interest of the country. though. Because, but anyway, that's a different story. But I think the, that's the problem with comics. It's a bit in the download mode. It's not in the upload more so i would be happy if kids are encouraged to you know make the next Asterix comic or the next tintin comic rather than
2: reading the old ones well, That that's fascinating and uh, my last question to you rishi like you know we have, we have talked about innovation and things but and it's a very uh, what do you call important as a system or an ecosystem that we need to actually have but what do you think we should do for the future as individuals and as a country
1: so uh, i think uh, i already hinted at some of those things i think today you know india is uh, in many ways no longer a poor country uh, we have the resources available uh, particularly middle class india has the resources to experiment we need to encourage particularly our kids to you know go on new paths we need to encourage them to try things out uh, we need to be willing to you know uh, tolerate a lot more failure for that we have to get out of the way you know we have to let kids make their own mistakes learn from mistakes not sort of be very overly protective and try to you know sort of all the time tell them what to do so i think that that's to me that seems to be the most uh, important uh, thing that we uh, need to do and the second one of course which I sort of uh, uh, hinted at earlier is the education system. Make it much more open-ended, make it more exploratory, no ready-made answers. Let people find out for themselves, let them find answers. I think that's the way to go. And uh, we have quite some way to go on that as well.
2: And anything for enterprises?
1: Enterprises, I think the core thing is, you know, again, it's, it's a similar thing. We do encourage much more experimentation people have ideas but we we are not encouraging them to uh, run with those ideas uh, so i you know i gave you examples earlier people like marico and to some extent other groups like tatas you know and several of them and of course today the other thing is we've got some really smart startups in the country you know i sometimes meet some of these guys they've got really good ideas can we encourage these guys and i think one one thing i would mention there is can we have more open-hearted and generous investment by established companies in some of these startups? We're not seeing enough of them. We're not seeing people opening their purse strings. We have some of the richest people in the world in India. They should be really opening their purse strings much more to give a fillip to these young entrepreneurs with really great ideas. Obviously, many of them won't work, but what the hell? I mean, I think we can afford to invest that money in encouraging them.
2: I have to ask you this question on first strings and I have to put you in the corner on this question. And That is, people with big plus first strings can actually invest in educational institutions abroad, but they are not supporting research here in educational institutions here. Why does that happen? I think it's a bit complex,
1: (laughs) actually, uh, in the sense that, you know, I think, you know, historically we've always uh, liked to have foreign connections. It's just like a foreign product is always valued more than a local product. Similarly, we like to have that respect and we want to be you know, linked up to those foreign networks. So I would much rather have my name associated with a classroom at Wharton or Harvard than, you know. Uh, in India. Also, in India, uh, historically, a lot of the education has been in the government sector, but that's changing now. So, I think hopefully, with more private institutions coming in, I mean, and we have seen some really good private institutions in recent years. So, hopefully, we'll see some amount of the corporate money and uh, philanthropy and all going into making those universities really
2: very good. Thank you, Rishi. I, this has just been a very, very interesting conversation. I just learned quite a bit. So it's all about innovation, it's about creating an e- ecosystem and it's an effort that every one of us will actually have to push forward with, either as individuals, as corporations and as a, as the government. Rishi, thanks a lot for joining us uh, for this episode of uh, Thinkers. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Amit. Wonderful. Great to be with you. Thank you.
1: Bye-bye.